For those of you who are not new to our gathering, you'll know that we usually dedicate our Sundays by walking through the Scripture, sometimes through a verse-by-verse exposition or what I like to call a systematic theology approach to the walking of the, walking through the Scriptures. And that really simply means that we often use our Sundays to systematically walk through a book of the Bible, stopping every once in a while as appropriate to talk about how the Scripture applies to our lives within the context of certain seasons of our church's life. And next week, we're going to be going into a series about, you know, the theme of Christmas. Why? Because, well, it's going to be after Thanksgiving, and it's totally okay, as I learned today, it's the only time that it's okay to listen to Christmas music. And so I disagreed, but I was outvoted. For those of you who think it's okay to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving, just say amen. Okay, see, see now all of you got outvoted. See, I can listen. Put the Christmas playlist on as we leave today. I'm teasing. Don't you dare. Well, some of you remember in May of 2020, May of 2020, oh my goodness, can you remember May of 2020? We started to walk through the book of Acts and interrupted that study to prepare our hearts for the capital campaign that we just finished, uh, the, the series, and we started it with 21 days of prayer. And then last week, we ended what we called our Amplify series with our Commitment Sunday. And I, I just want to stop here, by the way, if you weren't here, and there's some of you I know were not here At the end of the gathering, we ask people to bring in their commitment cards as a symbol of their commitment to engaging in what we believe is a great leap of bold faith God is asking us to enter into, raising funds to allow us to begin the search of a permanent facility we could utilize as a launching pad for ministry. And so I just want to thank all of you who turned in those commitment cards last week. If you did not get a chance to submit one and you would like to today, you can find a commitment card on the side of that red box just as you exit, and you'll just find it on the side, and you can fill one of those out. Uh, You can also go to our website, or you can go to the mobile app, and if you uh, click on the Amplify graphic, it'll take you to a link where you can find more information. If if this is the first time you've heard about it, you can... uh, there's a link for you to, to submit your pledge, and there is even a link there to begin giving if that's something you want to start doing. Uh, by the way, on December 5th, some of you are like, oh, so, so what, was, what, was, what do we get? What do we get? I want to know. Like, I, honestly, I don't know. In fact, I, I purposely did not uh, count it up so I could, like, with integrity tell you, I literally don't know. So I didn't know. I, but on December 5th, we're going to announce, uh, once we get all of our pledges in, what the final number is. And so I, listen, no matter what the final number is, I am so excited about how God unifies us in our efforts to have God amplify the work of the gospel in us and through us so that we can be disciples that make disciples who makes disciples. And I don't know if you feel this, but I do. I feel it with, 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 with all honesty. I, I just feel that God is unifying our hearts together around uh, around his mission more than ever since, since the first days. I mean, I, I tell people this all the time. I haven't felt this kind of unity and excitement towards being the church together since really the first days we started. And um, so anyways, uh, check that red box out if you want to grab that. Also, 
we're going to be having that red box every week there as a way for you to give if you want to, if you prefer to give a check or cash rather than online. And we'll make that available at our gatherings each and every week. So you'll see that box back there. We won't pass the plate, but that box will be back there. Are you at Acts chapter 20? Did you find it? Acts chapter 20? Today we're going to be picking up where we left off at the end of August. Can you believe that? (laughs) End of August. At the end of August, we stopped at the end of Acts chapter 19, and so we're going to be in Acts chapter 20 today. And just in case you don't remember, or maybe you were not with us when we were studying Acts 19, I'm not going to give a synopsis of 1 to 19, but let me just give you a little bit of where we were in chapter 19. So as we head into chapter 20, you can kind of track along with us. Paul was an apostle sent out by the church in Antioch. If you didn't know this, Paul was not like some rogue missionary. He was sent out by a local church with leadership that prayed over him, that sent him, that thought he was uh, you know, God had anointed him and was worthy, and he sent him out. Actually, he was a second guy at first. It was Remember, who was the first guy? Who was the main guy in charge of the missionary work? A guy by the name of Barna- Barnabas, right? So it was Barnabas and Paul, and then somewhere along the journey, it switched to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul was sent out by this church in Antioch to be missionaries of the gospel. And in chapter 19, we find that Paul is preaching and teaching the gospel in a town called Ephesus. And as a result, as we, when we listen to, to the story of how, uh, how, you know, what happened when Paul preached the gospel, as a result, people did what? They placed their faith in Jesus and their lives were transformed. Unfortunately, <laughs> when the way the gospel was transforming people's lives began to threaten the livelihood of those who made a living in making of pagan shrines for pagan worship, these shrine makers were obviously what? Probably pretty upset. And they were. They were so upset, and they did what people who are upset do, which is riot. And once this riot broke out, two disciples of, of Jesus got dragged out. You know, we call them disciples of Jesus, or disciples of Paul, if you want to call them whatever, but they were disciples. They were followers of Jesus. Two disciples got dragged out in front of this mob. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19, verse 29. Now, when this happened, Paul, rightly so, saw this going on and said, I should go and I should, you know, kind of step in here and stop this and figure out what I could do. But his disciples and, and I don't, you have to go back and you listen to it, but it's really significant to to realize that not only his disciples, but his non-Christian friends, he had non-Christian friends. Do you have non-Christian friends? Anyways, his non-Christian friends told him, don't go out there, Paul, you're going to get killed. And they persuaded him not to go because they feared for his life. And so this is where we pick up in the story. Paul doesn't go. Eventually, the riot gets calmed down because one of the officials comes and says, hey, guys, basically what you're doing is dumb. If you do this, the big Roman Empire is going to come in and they're going to squash this riot and no one's going to walk away happy. And so they're like, okay, all right, okay. And so this is where we pick up in the story, Acts chapter twenty. Verses 1 through 6, and I'm just going to read this. Verse 1, it says this, After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had passed through those areas and offered them many words of encouragement, he came to Greece and stayed three months. 
The Jews plotted against him when he was about to set sail for Syria. And so he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by uh, Sopater, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went ahead and waited for us in Troas. But we, we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. In five days, we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a windowsill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. When he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. But Paul went down, bent over, embraced him, and said, don't be alarmed because he's alive. After going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn. Then he left. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Azos, where we were going to take Paul on board, because these were his instructions, since he himself was going by land. When he met us at Azos, we took him on board and went on to Mytilene. Sailing from there, the next day we arrived in Chios. The following day, we crossed over to Samos, and the day after we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the providence of Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. Okay, that's our passage of Scripture for today. It's great, isn't it? Isn't it just like eye-opening? Isn't there just like such great stuff here that you can apply to your everyday life? Yeah? No? No? Not really? <laughs> Before we dive in and take a closer look at the story of how it helps us understand who God is, because really, that's remember, this is why we study the Scripture. If, if, if you forget, we do not study the Scripture so we can become historians. We study the Scripture because we want to know who God is, and the Scripture is the greatest display of who God is, and it tells us what He has done so we can understand the character of God and therefore understand the will of God, right? That's why we study the Scripture. And so before we, we dive into that, um, I would just love for us, because I, I really think we need the Holy Spirit, otherwise this will just be a history lesson, because I deeply want you, each and every one of you, to walk away feeling that God has spoken to your heart through His Word. Don't you want that today? Otherwise, I think it'd be a waste for you to come out. And I want God to speak to you today. So let us pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you, in these next few moments, would by your Holy Spirit open our spiritual ears to hear what you would want to speak to us. I pray that you would open our hearts to willingly embrace what it is you want to teach us. 
Most of all, I pray that you would open our minds and help us begin viewing the realities of our everyday lives through the lens of your truth. And may your truth cut us to the heart and transform us from the inside out so that through our lives you can accomplish your mission in us and in the world. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 20, for some, can be a difficult chapter to get something from as we read together. For one, on the outside of, uh, you know, from the outside, it, it seems like this is just kind of like a travel log. And really, outside of the story about someone dying after falling out of a window because they fell asleep during Paul's teaching, this section is mostly a boring travelogue, especially if you don't understand New Testament typography and geography. And this, by the way, if you take a look at it or if you listen to what all the historians believe about this time period, this is, a, this is about a time period about a year and a half to two years. And even though a lot was talked about in just a few, a few short verses, this happened over the span of a year and a half to two years. Now, we could stop to talk about some of the interesting facts about the story at the end of the day. The only real big takeaway that seems to really affect how we as Christians live out our faith is that the story records that the earliest unambiguous evidence we have for Christians gathered for worship was a Sunday. That's what one historian says, that this probably the really only big thing that we take away from this that affects how we live today is this first unambiguous account of the believers of Christ gathering together on a Sunday for worship. That's about it. That's really about it, if you think about it. Apart from that, there's about as much excitement here as there is in reading the genealogies found in the book of Numbers. Has anyone ever read the book of Numbers? Right? That's, I mean, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty dry. It's so-and-so, we got so-and-so. And so if you thought the names that I just read were hard to read, I actually had to make notes because some of these names I didn't know how to... But, right? Aminadab, we got Shabidadab and Habidabab, and, right? And then they talk about how many years they live, and it was just, it's really boring. But you read through it, right? Because you're supposed to read your Bible. Pray every day. And you will what? Grow, grow. Anyone remember that song? Read your Bible, pray every day. You will grow, grow. There you go. Apart from that, right, much excitement here is, 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 is lacking. And taking into account that this part of Luke's historical account of the early church, remember Luke, the disciple, was the one who wrote the book of Acts. Apart from the fact that he was actually an eyewitness to this account as made clear by the switching of, uh, to the use of first-person language in verses 5 to 6. Maybe you realize that. Some of you might have been astute to, to realize that. But previously, the, the, the writing was always very much in third person. But in verse 5 to 6, now it switches to this first-person account. It seems that Luke didn't find what happened between the time of leaving Ephesus and hopping on a ship for Jerusalem as anything really important that needed to be recorded. I mean, if you're telling your first-person account and something significant happened, you would record it. And while there are some things we can take from what Luke records in our passage we read today, it's what Luke 
doesn't record. That we have the privilege of knowing because of the rearview mirror of history, of hindsight, that's 2020. It's what Luke doesn't mention that's actually most surprising. For instance, during this time, verses 1 through 16, uh, Paul writes his second letter to the church in Corinth. Now, I know not many people are like, oh, well, (laughs) that's amazing. But what you need to know is that this letter was a follow-up to Paul's first tearful letter addressing the sinful issues that were happening among the Christians in Corinth, the early church, by the way. I know a lot of people are always into like, oh, we're just going to get back to the early church. We just need to get back to the early church. We just need to get back to the early church. You know what the early church looked like? Well, according to one Bible scholar, it says like this, the church in Corinth was dividing into groups with varying leaders, having casual sex with one another, going sideways or whether, um, on, on whether or not to eat food offered to idols, getting drunk at church gatherings. That's why we don't have real wine, because I know some of y'all will just grab a few more than we actually hand out to you. Uh, And some were denying the resurrection. It was like the wild, wild west, says this one commentator. Yeah, that really sounds like the early church I want to get back to, right? (laughs) Please don't nod your head yes. You're supposed to say no. The good news is that Paul's first letter was received well, and when a word came back to Paul that the Corinthians were repenting and doing what they could to reconcile themselves to God and to each other, he, as one Bible scholar writes, at once wrote this letter. It was not a moment for dealing with Christian doctrine or Christian practice. Quote, the letter is, a sim- is simply a pouring out of the man himself. Other commentators of this passage would describe this second letter to the church in Corinth as, quote, the most personal of all of Paul's letters. So in this short period of time or long period of time, but short amount of verses, Paul writes what Bible historians would refer to as the most personal letter ever written by Paul to churches, okay? Now, in hindsight, you would think that this is a pretty significant thing that Luke would have recorded, but he doesn't. He doesn't And while we don't know exactly why Luke didn't record Paul's communication with the church in Corinth, I mean, he records that there's lots of candles, (laughs) but he doesn't record this letter that Paul writes. We can assume that Paul writing this letter to Luke really wasn't a big deal, okay? To Luke, now here's where I'm going to take some liberties. Okay, take some, I want to be clear, taking liberties here. Okay, to, be, to Luke, I think it probably seemed like Paul was writing letters all the time to the churches he planted. In fact, historians tell us that there's probably a bunch of letters of Paul that we don't call scripture anymore, mostly just because they got lost. But history alludes to the fact that there are missing letters and there are other letters. And so I think Paul had this rhythm of every day in his everyday life, just writing, writing letters to the churches he planted. And it was kind of an everyday rhythm that just didn't seem to make much of a wave in Luke's opinion about what was worthy of recording in this great historical account of the early church that Luke set out to put together. That was his, that was his deal with like, Acts. He was like, I'm going to put together this great historical account of the beginning of the church. And so he left this out. But 
That's not all that Luke seemed to leave out. During this time, Paul writes what Martin Luther would refer to as, quote, the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He goes on to say it would be quite proper for a Christian not only to know it by heart, word for word, but also to study it daily, for it is the soul's daily bread. It can never be read or meditated too much and too well. What is this part of the New Testament that Paul writes, that theologians like Martin Luther, and really, uh, there was a, a more recent theologian who wrote a, uh, his commentary, and he, he entitled it, The Greatest Letter Ever Written. <laughs> like, it's something you just don't hand out to, to letters, especially biblical letters. What is this letter? Does anyone have a guess? Guess, guess, guess. Nobody, nobody wants to put themselves on the line. The Book of Romans. The Book of Romans. And if you're not familiar with the book of Romans, it is arguably one of the most influential writings outside of the recording of the teachings of Jesus himself that have shaped Christian doctrine and theology. In fact, we often talk about how to lead someone to Christ in terms of the book of Romans. We often say what? You should, when you're leading someone to Christ, you should use the what? The Romans what? Road. In fact, I, I... There are probably, if you grew up in church, there are more verses in Romans that you probably grew up memorizing than in any other book of the Bible. Okay, so that was this passage of Scripture. What's the takeaway, right? What's the takeaway? Like, what what are we... I gave you a little bit of background because I just think it's important for us as we're studying through this. But at the end of the day, we all want to know, like, how then shall we live, right? Like, how does this affect how we live? What is the takeaway from this passage? And I want to suggest a few things that I think could be something maybe that God would want to speak to you about. I know he was speaking to me about as I was really trying to figure out how do you teach with passion a travel log. I don't know about you, but to me when I read Luke's recording of what it seems to be an observation of normal, everyday rhythms of Paul's life, it reminds me of the potential power of our everyday rhythms. I don't know about you, but there are times that I can view the everyday rhythms of my life as not very powerful, right? When you think about your everyday rhythms, not many people go, they wake up every day and go, this day is going to be powerful, that if someone were to follow me around, that, they, that there would be many things that would probably, in all honestly, if someone was to follow me around, the truth is that if someone was tasked to document my life, they would probably follow me and <laughs> just say, there really isn't much here to record because of perceived lack of significance or impact. I mean, nobody, nobody wants to record my routine of cleaning my CPAP every other day. Like, it's just not, it's not like really powerful or impactful, okay? 
But here is the truth. Here's the truth. Our everyday rhythms matter. First of all, because it's where we live most of our lives. Like your everyday rhythms matter because that's literally where you live most of your life. When Paul wrote to the believers in a city called Thessalonica about how to live a life that pleases the Lord, listen to what he writes in 1 Thessalonians 4. We urge you to do this more and more. What is it that he's urging them to do more and more? Catch this. Make it your goal to live a quiet life. Okay, he's going to talk about something spiritual next, right? Minding your own business. Okay, he's now he's going to talk about something spiritual, right? And working with your hands. Okay, now he's going to talk about something spiritual, right? Just as we've instructed you before. What? Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live, and you will not need to depend on others. <laughs> what you have to understand is that Paul wasn't as necessarily encouraging people to live, like the end goal wasn't live a quiet life, mind your own business, and work hard, because that in itself is what pleases God. That wasn't what he was saying. You have to look at the second verse. The encouragement to view our commitment to show up in the everyday rhythms of our lives as the way God accomplishes the work he does is, um, is, is, is how God makes us witnesses in the everyday rhythms of our lives. The encouragement to show up, to do our work, to mind our own business. What does this mean? And, and really this, this more alludes to the fact of like, why, don't, don't be causing any trouble. Don't be, don't be causing any trouble. Don't be a drama queen. You know, and, and live a quiet life. And that has less to do about introversion and extroversion. It has more to do about are you selfish? Are you looking for your own desire? Like, are you looking for it to be about you? This is why in his letter to the believers in Ephesus, Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Have you ever considered that your rhythms, the boring, the run-of-the-mill, wake-up and work kind of life is the kind of life that God planned for you long ago? Like, don't miss this. There is power in our everyday rhythms, not because of anything in particular we bring to the table, but because we are God's masterpiece. On top of that, God had it in his plan for us to do good even before we were conceived. I mean, think about that. I know that there can be a temptation to discredit the everyday rhythms of our lives as not being very special or significant, right? The tireless rhythms of trying to make a living, commuting, meetings, tasks, deadlines. That doesn't seem very significant or, or very special. The never-ending cycle of parenting realities, the wake up the kids, the put the kids down, the change the kids, the, to clean the kids, the feed the kids, the take them to school, kid, and then, right? That doesn't seem very exciting. Like, how does God 
God use that for his glory? That probably doesn't seem very, very exciting. How about the endless obligations of household chores or meal preps or maintenance on stuff like your car or maybe your cell phone that you broke the screen on again, Josh? Uh, well, it's been a while since you broke the screen, so, but, right? Like, that doesn't seem very exciting, like the maintenance and the household chores and the meal preps and all this kind of stuff and making sure that I at least get to wiping the ledges, you know, in the, on the baseboards before my in-laws come in town or whatever, whatnot, right? That doesn't seem very exciting. Or how about the never-ending pursuit of trying to build and maintain healthy relationships with friends and family, like, I'm going to call them. They haven't called me. Or should I call them? It's their turn to call me. I mean, I don't want to do all the work. Well, I guess I better call them. Or did they, did they say, they called me. They sent a text. They left me on red. I don't know. Did they not want to talk to me? And did they, yes, they want to talk to me. Or that thing they said to me. I don't know. They said it the wrong, right? We all know what it means, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like the never-ending cycle of what it means to maintain friendships and maintain loving relationship with family members. Like it's, 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 an, an, it's, it's never ending. And that can't be very special, right? Like God really isn't interested into my little squabble with my sister or my, my brother or how I think my, my dad has just gone over the edge and I feel like now I'm, I'm the parent or whatever. That, that doesn't matter much to God, does it? But what if, what if God has it in his great plan to redeem what we see as routine? And make it the source of his joy. What if showing up to our everyday rhythms was part of God's plan to give him joy? How would viewing your everyday rhythms change if you stopped to actually consider that showing up faithfully to your everyday rhythms was not just an obligation to this earthly life, but is valued by your heavenly Father as opportunities to accomplish what God wants to do in the world through us. I think this is what Jesus meant in part when he taught this in Luke chapter 16, when he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Don't worry. I just spent the last four weeks talking about money. We're not talking about money. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that how we live out the obligations and rhythms of our everyday life proves who or what we are devoted to serving. That's the point. Jesus wasn't talking about bribing people to become friends. I know some of you can look at it like, Jesus is promoting bribing. It's like, you should make friends with worldly wealth. Jesus, are you into bribing? No, that's not what Jesus was saying. 
He was talking about how you bless others with the blessings you've accumulated in this life by showing up, because how do you make money? You show up to the mundane rhythms that are part of your life, showing up faithfully to the everyday rhythms of your life, your work, your relationships, your parenting, your marriage, your accumulation of stuff. And if these things feel like you are living every day as a servant to the demands of your everyday life, well then let me ask you this. If, if you showing up every day feels more like serving the world and serving and being a slave to the demands of this world, then let me ask you this. In your heart, who or what are you devoted to serving? God or accomplishments? God or the tasks? Like, who really in your heart of hearts are you serving? When you do what you do, are you doing it because a task needs to be done or because I serve God? And he has created me to do good works that he planned long ago. The temptation to want more out of life is a double-edged sword. If rooted in the desire to want more of Jesus and his transforming power in your life to give him glory and accomplish his will, then a desire for more is a good thing. A desire for more of Jesus is a good thing. But if wanting more is rooted in a desire to make much of ourselves, to accomplish our will, to live for our glory. And Jesus said it best. If you try to gain your life, you will what? Lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Today I really felt like I wanted to speak on this idea of how do we view our everyday rhythms? Because I think in the monotony of post-COVID life, I think there's a temptation that Satan can deceive us to be discontent with where God has ordained us to be. And for some of us, he does it very sneakily and in the guise of spirituality by saying, God doesn't want you here. You should be there. And so what ends up happening is we don't actually show up as Jesus followers in the everyday rhythms of our lives. And I wanted to encourage you that through this story of Paul, he had some everyday rhythms and, and it wasn't enough for Luke to record. But in hindsight, there were some great things that were accomplished as a result of Paul's everyday rhythms. Part of his rhythms was to write letters to churches. And some of you came to Jesus because you heard about a Roman's road. And one man's everyday rhythms became the way by which some of you became followers of Jesus. And wouldn't you say that was worth it for Paul? Your life is worth living for Jesus. 
First Corinthians, I want to close with this as our musicians can come back up. First Corinthians tells us this. Chapter 13 says, If I speak with human or angelic tongues but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so I can move mountains, in other words, if I could be the most spiritual person in the world, <laughs> what does he say? But I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing, that means I can accomplish a lot of stuff. I can get them things done, but if I have not yet love, I am nothing. And so Paul knows, as he says this, most people are going to say, well, then what is love then, Paul? And he goes on to say, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, is not irritable, is not irritable, is not irritable. Oh my goodness, in this current climate, we as followers of Jesus need to remember that the love of God in our lives being demonstrated is choosing to not be irritated. There's a lot to be irritated by. And does not keep a record of wrongs. Oh. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends.